Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. We have a very special episode today. Lou Meyer is business developer for the Davy Tree Expert Companies, Mid-Atlantic region, based in Baltimore. Lou has been on the show probably more than anybody. And we're also joined by Emily Tuppy. She's the author of The Edible Landscape and a professor at the University of Minnesota. We are going to talk all about edible landscapes. And before we get started, how do you two know each other, Emily? Great question. So Lou and I are cousins, and um, somehow we both got involved in this world of plants. So it's been a great connection to have with Lou. And uh, we talk about plants and landscapes a lot in our family. Tell me about the book and how it got started. Sure. So I have been working for the University of Minnesota Horticulture Department for about 15 years. And I my involvement mostly in the, on the research end has been in sustainable fruit production, but a side project of mine and a passion of mine has always been this idea of edible landscaping. And I have a little bit of a background in design, so I was always interested in the aesthetic qualities of plants and thought that there must be a way to combine edibles into ornamental landscapes to make ornamental landscapes a bit more productive. So early on in my career at the university, I uh, set up a demonstration garden, trying some of this stuff out, and it was just so much fun, and I learned so much from it that the book grew out of that. So tell me a little bit about edible landscaping. You know, when I think about that, I'm kind of thinking, I think Swiss chard, you know, like a red Swiss chard could be both beautiful and also edible. Sometimes I put pansies and violas with a fancy lettuce. Does that is that edible landscaping? Absolutely. And I have to say, you read my mind because Swiss chard is my favorite plant to use in edible landscapes for all the reasons you said. But yes, the, the concept of edible landscaping is to incorporate the idea of incorporating edible food producing plants into an ornamental landscape. So you can take advantage of the food production qualities as well as the ornamental qualities of some of these plants. So Emily, let's talk a little bit about trees, and then we can bring Lou in since he's an expert on trees. When you think edible landscaping, and you know, again, we repeat this every show: right tree, right place. But talk a little bit about what you were thinking about in planting those uh, some kind of tree that that had uh, either fruit or something we could eat. Sure. So fruit trees can be a great addition to an edible landscape. And you're absolutely right about right tree, right place, because fruit trees definitely um, have different hardiness levels, so are suited to different regions of the country. And a lot of people, I think their first thought when they think fruit trees for an edible landscape is apples, and that can be a great choice. But there are many others that can also be really good to use. And one of my favorites actually is cherry. And in the area where I am, tart cherries are the are the cherry tree of choice. And for an ornamental tree, they're just, they're beautiful trees. They have a beautiful coppery bark. They've got really shiny dark green foliage that turns a nice um, 
a nice crimson in the fall. And then the flowers and fruit are also really, really ornamental when they're on the trees. So that can be a great choice for people in many areas of the country. All right. So, Lou, let's talk about the problems of growing fruit trees in general, but let's start with cherries. Uh, What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about a cherry tree growing in a landscape? Well, I think they're wonderful. I, I wouldn't want to lead in with saying there are problems with it. Uh, there are issues to be aware of from an arboricultural standpoint. So at Davie, we try and keep trees healthy and happy and alive. And, um, you know, down where I am in Maryland, and I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, where it's a lot more humid than it is up in the <clears throat> zones that Emily operates in, we get uh, a lot more fungus down here. So for cherries, black knot is a fungus that causes some severe cankering in those trees. Uh, it's somewhat controllable, and it's not wiping out every tree. It's just something to be aware of. So, uh, you know, to every yin, there's a yan, right? That sounds good. Emily, over here in uh, Pittsburgh, zone 5-6, we have a saying, peaches will break your heart. Because what happens is those peaches will flower and then we get a cold snap and we don't get our peaches. But that's what makes them so special. To me, peaches are like a, a daffodil. It's an ephemeral crop that when it happens, there's just nothing that can beat a, a fresh, ripe peach picked right off the tree. Talk a little bit more about some other trees that you're thinking about planting when we're talking about edibles in the landscape. Sure. And I share your passion for peaches. And if we could grow them more successfully where I am, I would absolutely grow them too. But yes, that spring bloom freeze is definitely a challenge with a lot of fruit trees in a lot of more of the northern parts of the country. Uh, Plums are another great fruit crop that we don't often think of as an ornamental tree, but they can actually be really beautiful trees. And are even there are many varieties that are hardy to zone four where I am, but definitely down in some of the warmer uh, hardiness zones five and six where where you all are. And that can be a great choice. Um, Again, you have that potential for that bloom freeze in the spring where you might have a beautiful bloom and then a, a cold snap sets in and kills some of those flowers. And then you might not have fruit that year. But like you said, the years that you do get fruit, fabulous. Um, so that's one of the issues that we have to think about with fruit trees. And with with apples, generally, you're probably going to have more success because they do generally bloom a bit later and you won't have that freeze problem. Something to remember with apples and a lot of fruit trees is that you do need to often have two different varieties or cultivars to ensure that cross-pollination because a lot of them do require that. And when you know the variety, you can just you can go online and you can see what other variety is suitable, right? Is that how we do it uh, for either one of you? Uh, when I've ever talked about it, I've always, you know, somebody says, I've got this one tree. It's not putting on many apples. I said, we well, got to have two. And then I just look up online the name of the tree and then it gives me a whole list of cultivars. What is it about the cultivar? Is it when it, when it blooms or what kind of bloom it is? What is it that makes it uh, so they work together? It depends on the species. So with apples, it is 
overlap. It's the overlapping bloom period. So some some varieties of apple will bloom early in the spring and be ready to harvest early in the fall, where others might bloom a lot later and be ready to harvest later. So you need to find varieties that overlap in that bloom period. When we're talking about plums, it gets a little bit more complicated because they're Plums are such complex hybrids now that there are actually compatibility issues. And so you need to make sure that the varieties not only overlap in timing, but are compatible um, biologically as well. So that can be a little trickier, but all of that information is easily findable online. Do they, does it need to be a different cultivar or could it be the, can you have two of the same plum trees and they'll do it or does it have to be different? Generally, it needs to be different. So with apples, we definitely need a different cultivar. And oftentimes, um, flowering crab apples can be the pollen source for a fruiting tree. So there are so many flowering crabs in most neighborhoods that oftentimes, if you live in a in a fairly dense neighborhood, chances are you'll have a, a flowering crab apple within 100 to 300 feet, which is plenty close to allow for that transfer of pollen. Well, Lou, that brings me right to you with uh, flowering crab apples because I've got two of them out in my uh, landscape that are completely defoliated before frost due to apple scab. So let's talk about apples in general, uh, flowering crabs. What do you think? Yeah, they're spectacular trees. You know, we plant them frequently for their flowers and their beauty. Um, but yes, they are susceptible to apple scab. Uh, cedar apple rust is another big one. If you have a cedar species within, I want to say 100 feet or 100 yards, you're going to have some issues with them sharing rust. So rust is a type of fungus that needs two hosts. Cedar apple rust is obviously a cedar and an apple. Interestingly, uh, rust is a very uh, big issue in turf care as well. I know Zane Roudenbush didn't cover this in his uh, podcast, but it's it's one of my big ones that I have to tackle frequently out here, rust in your turf. And that secondary host species is actually the barberry. So barberry is the host species with turf rust. A little aside there, but an interesting fact that I always found. Well, since we got to barberry, that's a, t- a tick magnet too. That that plant is, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, we don't need any more barberry. Now, now I, I, Not at all. I've heard they're working on ones or might have released ones that are, are sterile, but who knows? So back to apples. Either one of you two have a favorite apple? Ooh. (laughs) Well, being from the University of Minnesota, I have to say Honeycrisp is one of my favorites. It's a child of our department, and we're all extremely proud of it. But honestly, I have to say that one of the children of Honeycrisp, which is Sweet Tango, probably is now maybe more my favorite. It has a really delicious apple cidery kind of flavor has a little more body, a little more tartness than the Honeycrisp. And that one just, I think that's probably my favorite these days. And it's, it's not around in the markets for very long. If you're shopping for it, it's, um, it's kind of ephemeral in the fall, but, um, but yeah, it's a good one to find if you can. How about you, Lou? I like whichever one is in the pie. Yeah. Okay. That's what I figured. No, uh, uh, you know, people go nuts, uh, Emily, for that Honeycrisp. You know, so many, you know, so many times, you know, no, nobody knows the name of an apple, you know, except maybe Red Delicious or something like that. But boy, I first off, I didn't know that it came from the University of Minnesota. And, uh, you know, again, if I hear about apples, it's always Honeycrisp, Honeycrisp, Honeycrisp. And then uh, for me, I love Pink Lady. 
So, and that's an easy one to grow here. Uh, when we're talking about edible landscapes, Emily, uh, any other trees come to mind or where should we go? What, do you, what else are you thinking about when we're thinking about planting uh, something that's beautiful and also edible? Sure. I think a, a good place to start is starting small. Start with one or two. Uh, keep an eye on things like trees, mature tree size when you're shopping for trees. A lot of trees that are sold in the nurseries now are on are grafted on dwarfing rootstocks, which makes the trees smaller and easier to fit into any landscape. And uh, but don't go overboard. <laughs> keep it keep it simple. Don't plant a whole orchard right away. Uh, these trees do require more maintenance, maybe on a on a personal homeowner level than uh, than a, you know, a typical ornamental tree would. So you're going to need to be pruning every year. You'll need to be watching out for diseases and um, maybe thinning fruit in the spring. But all of these tasks are fairly limited and they're actually really fun and it makes it makes you feel like you're a part of this plant's life and when you finally do get fruit off of these trees it's just so so satisfying knowing that you've been a part of that and that you've helped that happen so lou let's talk about pruning how does somebody learn how to do it when we prune fruit trees we're looking to do accomplish a few things one is uh increasing the airflow in the canopy. So we talked about fungus earlier being a problem down here in Maryland and, and Ohio and in that region. Uh, thinning that canopy allows for more airflow and the drier the canopy is, the less fungus there is available. Let's talk about a couple trees that uh, are more for our zone down here. Persimmon. Lou, talk about a persimmon because I just, I came back from Italy and persimmon was everywhere and I've heard you can grow them in zone six, but I really don't know anything about them. Yeah, so persimmons are a native tree to our area. Um, I see them frequently out in the wild, uh, sometimes in landscape too. That actually brings us on to an interesting topic of a lot of edible trees and shrubs that are surrounding us right now. Uh, Doug, you know that I'm out with my two little kids all the time, hiking and exploring the, uh, the, the wildlife and the wild grounds around us. And you know, we're constantly munching on uh, whatever we can find that I know is safe. So the big one, you covered a few, um, you know, a few few episodes ago with the pawpaw, a wildly popular uh, edible tree of our, man, the eastern United States. And it is prolific. Um, and a, a beautiful yeah. tree, too. Really a, a pretty tree. You know, not great flowers, but it just its shape is really nice. Oh, a great shape. Absolutely. And a nice little fall color, too. Some yellow that you see right now. Uh, but we love foraging for pawpaws. Uh, another good one uh, is uh, service berries. So service berries are a native tree to our area. The Juneberry, it's also known as the Amelanchier. Uh, if you're a bird fan, you've got tons of birds on your service berry tree around June, July as they fruit. But that fruit's edible also. Um, but yeah, back to the persimmon. So you know, it's it's around the United States. Um, it's a medium-sized tree, so it grows 25 to 40 feet tall. Um, sometimes you'll see them larger, upwards to 60 feet, but that's really rare. Fruit becomes ripe in this area uh, around early October. So um, they're not large fruit. They're probably about a circle the size of a, a racquetball at the most, uh, but really tasty. Uh, they use them in a lot of jams. So, yeah, the persimmon's a good one. 
So I have service berry, Emily, and I'm always walking by it and seeing those berries on there. And by the time I think of I'm going to get back to get them, the birds have already taken them, which is okay by me. It's all right. Emily, in you're in zone four, is that right? Yes. So is that limiting for you or are there lots of choices for zone four? It can feel limiting at times, but really, if we think about it, there are so many options. And if we if we expand our thinking beyond trees uh, to other fruits, there are some great, maybe less commitment fruits that we can grow. So strawberries are a great place to start. There are a lot of really hardy varieties that will withstand some of the coldest winters. Raspberries are a great place to start as well. Take a little management to keep them from getting out of control, but it's worth it for all that fruit you get in the late summer. Uh, Currants are a great choice for colder regions. They can withstand the harshest winters and the fruit is delicious and uh, just beautiful plants with beautiful little chains of gem-like berries that are just so gorgeous. Uh, Gooseberry is another one that can be grown in cold regions. Um, and blueberries also. Blueberries require acidic soil, so that would be a consideration. But once you've got the right soil, if you've got planted in the right place, really easy plant to grow and will produce fruit for 50 years at least. So let's go back to strawberries. Everbearing or June bearing or both? I like to grow both because it's so great to get that huge flush of berries in this midsummer, early to midsummer. But then the everbearings or the the newer varieties of those called day neutrals, which are a little bit improved, um, those are great because then you extend your grow your fruiting season all the way through fall until your first frost. So I love planting both. And Emily, how do you keep those strawberries safe from everybody that everything that wants strawberries? <laughs> Plugs all the yep, way up. Yep, that's <laughs> all the way up the chip It's mark. tricky. Exactly. It's tricky. Uh, a fence for the bigger animals, if that's possible for you. Um, netting for the birds, if it's a problem, the the little ground dwelling creatures, I haven't quite found a, <laughs> a deterrent for those yet. But picking them often, being out there in the garden and uh, just keeping an eye on things, uh, picking the fruit when it's ripe. So you're not you don't have overripe fruit that's sitting there and attracting wasps and all of that. But if you incorporate these into a landscape and you're planting them in small little beds and separating them throughout the yard, you can break up those problems a lot. And and you'll find that if you if you plant them in the in the edible edible landscape in your ornamental garden, I I haven't seen I haven't had devastating problems with with pests when I when I plant them that way. And Emily, how about a couple more ideas for uh, edible landscaping? What else comes to mind? What comes out of the book that uh, you would suggest for people? Because I, I, I just love the idea. And I, we, we see it as a trend also. You know, if you go to any uh, public garden, you're going to see, you know, edibles used as ornamentals. Absolutely. I love starting with leafy greens because one, they're easy to grow. They can replace some of those uh, summer summer annual flowers in the garden. And it's an easy thing to start with because they're just, they're easy to grow. They're quick, a lot of quick satisfaction from those. And so if you start with lettuces, you've got such a range of colors and leaf shapes to work with. 
Uh, kale also can just offer some beautiful colors, interesting visual textures in the garden. Swiss chard we mentioned is one of my favorites uh, to bring a pop of color. And then if you're a little more uh, interested in some different flavors, moving into some mustard greens. Uh, Mizuna mustard has a great, really frilly texture that is just a beautiful border plant. And then you get up into some of the larger mustard greens. There's an Osaka purple that has a gorgeous, deep burgundy purple leaf. And it just, all of these bring so much color and texture to the garden that they're really easy ones to start with. And flavor too. You know, oftentimes uh, here in my zone five, six area, they'll sell some of that stuff, those mustard greens and Mizuna as ornamentals. And I'm, I'm going the other way. I'm, and they can take cold too, which is really nice. You know, you could put them out there in a cold frame or something for the the winter. And talk a little bit about the flavor of those greens. And you know, once you get those into the your your own kitchen, it's hard to live without them. You know, they they just have that spiciness to them and a, a, a unique flavor that's just wonderful. Absolutely. Right. There's such a range of flavors from all these different greens and you can use them in so many different ways at different stages of their growth. So as these plants are small, you can pick some of those some of those tiny leaves to add to salads and it's just a nice, tender, sweet flavor. But then as they get more mature, you can harvest them for sauteing or putting in soups and and also salads as well. Um, such a range of, of interesting flavors. And what's great about these plants too, is you can continue to harvest throughout the season. So you're not just cutting down that whole plant to harvest. You can pick a few leaves off and use those, let the plant keep growing, and it still looks really great in your landscape. Well, Emily, I have one more for you. It's called Red Streaked Arugula. And it's been out for a couple of years. Uh, and, you know, you can get it going, man. That thing, you know, you got green leaves with red streaks in it. You can't go wrong. Uh, that's if you can, if you like arugula. Not everybody likes arugula, but I'm obsessed with arugula. Lou, uh, what are you thinking from your standpoint for uh, edible landscaping uh, from your overall work that you're doing for Davy? Sure. As an arborist, I always think of the big trees too. So, you know, we, we talk about ornamentals as far as landscape design, but some of the larger trees can be really important for foraging gardens and, and feeding as well. So around here, pecans uh, are a tree that grows very well. And, you know, you get pecan nuts from there. Uh, walnut trees. Now, when you buy walnuts from the store, you're generally buying English walnuts. But the black walnut, <clears throat> the native tree to North America, has the same flavor and the same effect. And then finally, hazelnuts. Hazelnuts, the filberts grow great, uh, gosh, all over the United States. So some of those larger trees. Now, of course, with those comes arbicultural management. And that's why you have companies like Davy to help you maintain them, uh, you know, pruning them away from your home, getting dead limbs away from them if, if they're in your yard uh, and being responsible about where you plant them, right tree in the right place. You don't want a pecan tree over your driveway where you park your car, for instance, uh, or maybe even over your roof. This year we had a mast year for oak trees in uh, Maryland, and I have two white oaks over my house. And for most of September and October, it sounded like we were under attack uh, from these trees pounding away. Uh, Molly kept hitting me whenever the, the 
the roof was shaking saying you got to do something about these uh so yeah right tree in the right place with them but but there are options yeah we had the same thing for our oak trees here we had to walk the dog with bike helmets on but uh that's another story lou what do i do when uh, uh a kid gets those black walnuts and gets that dial over their hands how do we get it off <laughs> i just leave them outside for a few days Doug. <laughs> emily before i let you go before we finish up tell me a little bit about what you hope people get out of the book Oh, I just hope people are inspired to think about food producing plants in a different way. We always traditionally think about the the food garden having to be hidden in the backyard. And these plants offer so much more than just food production. And if we look at them from an ornamental perspective, we can get so much more out of these plants and they don't need to just be relegated to the vegetable garden in the backyard. And I think also what I one great thing about edible landscaping is it in, it promotes biodiversity in our gardens. So I'm not saying that we need to go out and replace our ornamental landscapes with all food producing plants. Instead, if we work some of these edibles in among our ornamental plants, we're increasing that biodiversity, which is increasing pollinators and beneficial insects, reducing disease incidents in our gardens, and just making a really healthy balanced space. So that's what I'm hoping that people get out of the book is a little bit of that inspiration. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Lou, as always, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for your input. And Emily, it was great to meet you. Great topic. And I've got some great new ideas now for my landscape too. Thank you both. All right. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you guys. And thank you, Doug. Thanks so much. This has been really exciting to be on here with with my favorite cousin. Don't tell the others, Emily. (laughs) Emily Tepe. All right, guys. Thanks again. Join me every Thursday for the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I am your host, Doug Oster, and do me a big favor. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. Have an idea for an episode or maybe a comment? Send us an email to podcasts at davy.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at D-A-V-E-Y.com. And as always, you know it. We like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer. <laughs>